This is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. In this episode, we meet Amaka Okachukwu from George Mason University. Amaka is the author of To Fulfill These Rights, Political Struggle Over Affirmative Action and Open Admissions with Columbia University Press. Okay, we're here with Amaka Okachukwu of George Mason University, and I understand that you've just released yes. your book, To Fulfill These Rights, Political Struggle Over Affirmative Action and Open Admissions with Columbia University Press. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> so we're here talking about affirmative action and open admissions in higher education. That's what the book's about. And can you start us off just for people who aren't familiar with the concepts, what's affirmative action mm-hmm. insofar as the cases you study, open admissions. What are they? Okay. Well, thank you for having me um, on your podcast. This is exciting. I haven't talked about my work in this kind of format before. Mm-hmm. So affirmative action is typically a policy or an admissions practice that considers race, ethnicity, or gender in the admissions process. It is a policy that is typically practiced at elite institutions, which is an important thing to mention because so much of our conversation publicly about affirmative action doesn't really deal with the kinds of institutions, right, that practice affirmative action. The sheer majority of institutions are not practicing affirmative action because, you know, they're not accepting a small number of applicants, right? But affirmative action can also extend um, to recruitment programs. It can impact financial aid packages, uh, scholarships. It can include pre-college programs, right? There's a very broad umbrella when we talk about affirmative action programs. But most times when we're talking about it, at least in the education context, we're talking about the consideration of race in the admissions process, in the university admissions process. Open admissions is a policy that essentially institutes more relaxed admissions criteria. Most people can understand this in terms of the policies that most community colleges practice, right? Essentially, if you have a high school diploma, you can enroll, right? And that's essentially open admissions. In terms of the cases in my book, which I'm sure we'll talk about, I focus on the CUNY system in in relationship to open admissions because it was the largest university system to practice open admissions in the four-year senior colleges, right? So Mm -hmm. we can, again, think about open admissions as a practice that is common in community colleges. It is less common in four-year Um, colleges. And so that's why the CUNY case is so significant in regards to its implementation of open admissions. Which cases do you look at in the book? Okay, so I focus on affirmative action at University of Michigan, University of Texas, and University of California. And then I look at open admissions and at the CUNY system. In these cases, I'm examining both political struggle over the adoption of these policies, as well as the retrenchment of these policies. So in each of these cases, their policies of you know race and class inclusive admissions, whichever policy it is, was threatened and rolled back to some extent, and in some cases completely eliminated, right? Uh-huh. And so I'm interested in the political struggle over these policies and really looking at these policies as a site to understand the sort of shifting American landscape with regards to race, right? Most scholars, when they're looking at affirmative action, are approaching as sort of higher education, you know, doing policy analysis. I'm really coming into this 
from a social movements perspective, as well as a kind of racial formation perspective, right? How are our ideas and practices about race and class shifting over time as evidenced in these cases? So can you set us up with the, the birth of the movement? When did affirmative action, open admissions take hold? What was the context like? Right. What were the concerns? Right. So this is a, such a messy question, right? Mm-hmm. It is, it is it, it seems like a simple question, but it is not, right? So with affirmative action, we have to remember that in the 1960s, this is a period in which the United States has experienced incredible amounts of political turmoil, right? Mm-hmm. And the civil rights movement has extracted really significant concessions from the state, and affirmative action kind of emerges in this period. It is in terms of how we talk about affirmative action and the sort of different, the sort of legislation that allowed for this to happen, it is both executive orders as well as parts of the Civil Rights Act that prohibit discrimination that people use as a means to essentially desegregate their campuses using affirmative action. There are scholars that show us, though, that a lot of elite spaces started doing experimental programs before they were federally mandated to Mm. desegregate their campuses because, you know, they were kind of, I mean, there's sort of a cynical way to look at it and there's, you know, there's a variety of ways to look at this, but they were, you know, inspired by the movements of the times and wanted, you know, these sort of do-gooder liberal administrators, right? We want to, you know, we don't want to be these awful people and we want to sort of help this this movement of civil rights. So we're going to bring in you know, five black people onto campus to (laughs) desegregate, right, these campuses. So elite um, schools begin to start doing this a bit Hmm. um, earlier, but, you know, affirmative action essentially comes out of this period. Now, one thing that I chronicle in my book is that, you know, you have some of these experimental programs that begin, but student mobilization on campus with those five kids, they come and they realize that they're feeling socially isolated, Hmm. that these policies aren't making a great impact, They want their peers that they grew up with or other people in the community to be able to experience this education. And so many students begin to demand more Mm -hmm. once they're on these campuses. And so a lot of affirmative action programs actually get extended and expanded Mm. um, as a result of this kind of, you know, political mobilization on campus because, you know, administrators don't want these kids to tear down the campus, right? Right. We can think about the emergence of open admissions in the same way, Uh right? So, So what's that story? Yeah. So in the CUNY system, you have a few, you know, black and brown students that are brought on a campus as a result of the SEEK program, right? Right. Particularly at City College. And those students are actually not, you know, it's essentially a kind of second class citizenship that they have. They can't participate in athletics. They can't, they don't have. But they weren't, they, wait, they weren't allowed no, to participate? No, they were not. I think they were, I think they were restricted from voting or something. Sikh students. Yeah, Sikh huh. students, right? So they weren't sort of fully empowered uh, CUNY students like the rest of other students, huh. right? And so these students, you know, shut down the campus, right? We have the open admission strike. This is the 50th year of the open admission strike. 1969. Hmm. And as a concession, right, the administration develops open admission. They had sort of been thinking about implementing 
a kind of open admissions over a you know a longer period of time, but the kind of political mobilization forces them to immediately implement it. Um, it's a concession because the black and brown students have very specific demands, which include like proportional demographic representation and, and those sorts of things. Mm. The administration says, well, no, we're not going to do that, but we will just allow everyone to come into these four-year um, universities. And so this was you know, kind of a revolutionary thing, right? City College at the time had this really incredible reputation, right, as a kind of Harvard of the working class, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so this was incredibly significant that the CUNY system could implement something so drastic. Demographically, the institution shifts radically, yeah. right? It, this is a majority white system before 1969, mm -hmm. right? And by 70, I think, four, you have you know almost a majority student of color population, <laughs> right? So it's a radical shift, right? Uh -huh. And so, yeah, so that's kind of like the emergence of these kinds of policies on these campuses. And how are the actors organized? Like who exactly, who is at the forefront uh, of the movement and what were they doing? In terms of adoption or rollback? Oh, adoption. Adoption of yeah. the policies. Okay, so... You know, as mentioned, because this is a process that kind of happens over time, you have, in some cases, people are responding to sort of federal legislation, mm -hmm. right? So you have sort of elected political actors that are, you know, shaping the debate here and administrators, right? In the first phase, I would definitely, particularly with affirmative action, that's what I would say at CUNY, it would be largely administrators uh -huh. in terms of adoption of these policies. And then, like I said, later on with student mobilization as sort of active political actors, um, that begins to also impact the kinds of policies or the sort of expansion of the policies. Hmm. Later on, we have different political actors involved in the rollback huh. of the policies, Wait, right? So, all right. And, and when did all of these changes occur and what was the uh, immediate reaction the the immediate pushback not the successful rollback but when it first happened these changes who reacted and how so th these changes really occur in the 1960s and early 1970s mm -hmm. you do have some pushback to the policies but i would say early on I believe that there was more pushback to affirmative action in employment than there was to education, okay. at least in my sort of scholarly opinion, right? Uh -huh. A lot of the literature from that period focuses on the employment sector, you know, different unions and different sort of labor organizations that, you know, had different positions on affirmative action. Some people were protesting. So you have some resistance. Why, why the difference? You think it's just a perception of jobs are scarcer or dearer? Or is that what it is, basically? Right. I mean, people, yes, this feeling of scarcity. You have to understand that when these policies are enacted in the 60s and the 70s, then we begin to experience massive economic shifts in this country, right? Waves of recessions. People are, you know, the plants are leaving, right? Mm. The industrialization. And so we do have a lot of feelings, I think, particularly among like the white working class and the white middle class that, you know, our opportunities are decreasing and now all these other people are coming in to take the jobs that are left right, right. and so i think there right. is this sort of feeling of scarcity and competition that comes out during that time period all right and then eventually sort of the counter-revolution yes. happens so what are the roots of that who is who is at the forefront of the push to roll back right so i would say 
a pr an important sort of prehistory. My book, in terms of the rollback, the rollback really focuses on the 1990s and the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. But the uh, Baki Supreme Court case is an incredibly important case to talk about a, a sort of important prehistory. Can you explain to it? The rollback, Just absolutely. So the Baki case is a 1978 Supreme Court decision that essentially sort of upholds diversity as a state interest, right? It's mm. legal, it's constitutional. Universities can pursue, they can compose their classes and consider diversity in the composition of their classes, right? Mm. So that is legal, that's constitutional. However, that sort of establishing the diversity as a rationale is important because prior, the rationale was not diversity. People were not using diversity as a reason to sort of compose their classes. They were using racial redress, right? This was about, you know, we have discriminated against people for this long period of time. We need to make up for that. We uh. need to have black people on camp. This is about desegregation okay. and, and racial redress, right? The Supreme Court in the Baki decision says, no, you cannot stay racial redress is the justification, but diversity can be a justification, okay. right? So that's the first thing that the Baki decision does. The second thing that it does is that it outlaws quotas, oh, okay. right? So, you know, we have in the 80s and the 90s, and even today, we have this sort of consistent association with affirmative action to quotas. Yeah, it's been totally. illegal since 1978. Really? Right, so huh. the Supreme Court said, <laughs> we're not doing this, right, in 1978. So, you know, it's interesting that I think in the 80s, Reagan and Republicans so you know, masterfully sort of equated affirmative action to quotas that totally. we, we tend to sort of still associate the, the two together, right? Yeah. So so the Baki decision is important for this. The, it, it features the case of a white man that is applying to graduate school or sort of medical school at uh, UC Davis. He gets rejected and he sues and says reverse discrimination. You didn't accept mm -hmm. me because I'm white, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is the, the sort of outcome of that, of that decision. Now, in the 1990s, you began to have um, a sort of um, emerging and sort of coordinated movement to roll back affirmative action. We first began with, in 1996, with the um, Hopwood decision in Texas, which temporarily outlaws affirmative action in Texas, but also throughout the rest of the Fifth Circuit jurisdiction, which was Louisiana and Mississippi also. But then we get the Grutter and Gratz decisions in Michigan in 2003, right? These are the famous Michigan cases mm -hmm. in which affirmative action is challenged in University of Michigan's law school mm. and the University of Michigan's undergraduate liberal arts school, right? Mm. Those decisions are important because the Gratz decision says, or basically renders that you cannot use mechanical means to include diversity, right? What does that mean? So this means that there is no equation. You can't just see a black person and say, okay, that's five points, right. right? And compose your classes in that way, right? That's a quote unquote mechanical way of doing things. You can't use grids. You can't use other mechanical ways. You have to use holistic review okay. of applications if you're, you know, with the inclusion of race. That's the only way that you can But it can't be quantifiable? It. No, right? Huh. It is holistic review, right? And so, so the Gratz decision outlaws that, but the Grutter decision upholds diversity. That's odd. So wait, you can use it, is it that you couldn't quantify it basically? Right. So it's this idea that when people are sending in all of these applications to these elite universities, right, mm -hmm. they're getting a whole bunch of applications for very few slots, mm -hmm. right? So um, how, you know, typically, right, people are sort of making decisions about who to admit, right? You mm -hmm. go through their application, you're saying, okay, this person has 
you know, they're musically inclined, 10 right. points. Mm -hmm. They're an athlete, five mm -hmm. points. They would add, oh, this person is black, three points or whatever, right? right. And so they say, you cannot include race in that calculation, huh. right? Because some, you know, the, 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 maybe the number is 75 and the cutoff is 80 or whatever, and so that you get rid of that person. That's a mechanical way, okay. right? Okay. And so they're saying, no, admissions offices, you can't do that. Right. So so an interesting thing that actually happens with the um, outlawing of this mechanical means in, in regards to the inclusion of race is that you actually have the ex a kind of expansion of admissions offices because you need more yeah. people to do a holistic yeah. review. Right. You need people to be able to sort of review the application in depth. Right. And give their sort of opinion about whether the person should be admitted or not. So those federal court decisions are really important. Now, what you also have is state ballot initiatives, right? So in California, you have a ballot initiative, anti-affirmative action ballot initiative in 1996, Proposition oh. 209, and that terminates affirmative action in university admissions, in state employment, and state contracting. The same initiative is passed in Michigan in mm -hmm. 2006. More kindly goes across the country, he's a UC regent, mm. and tries to sort of you know, pass these statewide ballot initiatives, um, which I talk about in the book. And so you also have this kind of tactic, right? Mm. So you have the tactic of the sort of federal challenge, right, which is very threatening because federal challenges could impact everybody, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have the statewide challenges, which tend to be more successful and will just impact the state. I also talk about the board of trustees sort of as a tactic, the ways in which um, conservatives sort of stack board of trustees mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. in their favor. So that's what happens in the CUNY system with the end of open admissions, right? Because you have at the time, you know, a mayor and governor that are kind of in alignment to want to end open admissions right. and they have appointees to the CUNY board of trustees and they're able to sort of undermine the policy with sort of help from the Manhattan Institute, which I know is still very involved in CUNY's affairs. When was it? That, um, you're talking Giuliani years? Is that yes. what that was? Huh. Uh, Giuliani and Pataki. Oh, interesting. And so, so yeah, so you have a variety of different sort of conservative tactics that are used to undermine affirmative action and open admissions. And so I talk about that in depth in the book, right? The sort mm -hmm. of conservative mobilization, the role of think tanks and foundations um, in uh, conservative public interest law firms, um, the coordination, right. right? So the connections between think tanks that may be involved with CUNY, but are also involved with affirmative action over here, right? Mm -hmm. But I also talk about, in addition to conservatives, right, which I think is important because, you know, as a side note, I think one of the interventions is that we don't, as sociologists, we don't spend enough time examining elite people, right? And elites and conservatives. We don't spend enough time examining them. And I think it's incredibly important to understand the strategies of conservatives because they're, uh, and elite conservatives because they're often successful, right? Well, what was it? What, what did they do? Like, what was the, if you were forced to sort of, in a nutshell, describe how they pulled it off? Like, what was the, what was the game? What well, was the some of what I've just described, right? So um, in terms of, you have coordination, mm -hmm. right? You have resources, right? With the role of different think tanks and public interest law firms, mm -hmm. right? You have these tactics that I've mentioned, right? The federal court intervention, the ballot initiatives, the board of trustees sort of manipulation. But then importantly, something that I talk about, particularly with the federal court cases and the ballot initiatives, is that you have this appropriation of civil rights language and mm -hmm. tactics and symbols, right? Uh -huh. So the federal court cases are an example of essentially mounting test cases like the civil rights movement did 
in trying to take down segregation, right? You have a test case, you know, find somebody that is experiencing or, you know, that can't, for example, um, attend a particular school because, you know, it's a whites-only space, right? Mm -hmm. You challenge that, right? You, you uh, sue, and then you sort of continue to mount that case with the intention of, you know, knocking down Jim Crow, right? Segregation at the time. Right. It, with the conservatives, right, the intention is to eliminate affirmative action. This is why we have so many cases, right? This is why we go from Texas to Michigan, back to Texas with the Fisher cases, and now we have this Harvard case that we're still tr right. trying to figure out what's going on with it, right? But regardless of the decision in the Harvard case, one either side will appeal. This is not the right. end, right? So, and, you know, Edward Bloom, who's behind this Harvard case, mm -hmm. was behind the Fisher cases, which is in the right. book, right? On um, the Michigan cases in the first Texas case, the Center for Individual Rights were behind that, those cases, right? So this, this is about a sort of, again, a goal and an intention to end affirmative action um, throughout the country. It was interesting uh, you were talking about sort of appropriating the logics of civil rights to undo civil rights. And that's totally apparent in the Harvard case. But could you maybe flesh it out a little? Like, how do they do it? How do they frame their pushback against civil rights as a civil rights issue. Right. So uh, I talk about this in, in the book, absolutely. So what we have here, you know, conservatives are using the language of colorblindness, mm -hmm. right? Many folks, you know, when Obama was elected, right, are we, you know, are we living in this colorblind society? Right. You know, hopefully we all see that that was a farce, right? But using this language of colorblindness, right, the civil rights legislation all rests on this idea of non-discrimination, mm -hmm. right? And when we equate colorblindness to non-discrimination, you can, and conservatives did, you can utilize this as a means to build cases to end these policies. When we're talking about the sort of civil rights tactics of the court case and the test cases, up until, let's see, 2016, right, between 96 and 2016, all the lead plaintiffs for these federal cases are white women. This is very strategic. This is about mobilizing a kind of gendered vulnerability mm. as a means to kind of paint whites as victimized, right? Mm -hmm. We're being victimized by these policies. That's why they featured women? White women, right. yes. All of the cases between 96 and 2016, these are the big cases, right? right. And I see this as significant in terms of, again, trying to mobilize this gendered vulnerability in order for whites to sort of claim victimization. And so, Part of what I'm arguing here and sort of sort of exploring in this book is even thinking about the sort of white racial identity in the mm. post-civil rights period and how in these cases you see that these conservative organizations are essentially trying to legislate whiteness as victimized, mm. right, in these um, federal court cases. You also see in the ballot initiatives, there's really intentional language um, to, one, strip affirmative action as a phrase from the actual ballot initiative. So many of the ballot initiatives didn't even say this initiative is going to end affirmative action. It was mm. actually very misleading in the ways that they titled and sort of formed the ballot language. In California and Michigan, these are initiatives that are called the California Civil Rights Initiative. Mm. That's what Proposition 209 is called. Huh. Proposal 2 in Michigan is called the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative, right? These are propositions that ended affirmative huh. action throughout the state. And in both of these cases, you have the languages that is used as racial preferences. It's not affirmative action, it's racial preferences, right? And when you have that, you have the title of it, Civil Rights, 
all of the media framing and mm -hmm. all of your campaign ads are explicitly drawing on civil rights symbols, right? Hmm. We have ads in Michigan that essentially show two small, ch a black child and a white child playing or sort of sh sharing ice cream cone. Yeah. And this is the, like, I don't know what that image tells us about <laughs> what the initiative is actually right. about, right? <laughs> but you have that type of imagery, a commercial that shows like water fountains and I believe like dogs attacking protest. This is civil rights you know, symbolism, right. Right? right? And they're using this to say, we are not for discrimination, and so we have to end huh. these policies because they're discriminating against white people. And so I think it's really important to sort of highlight the ways in which they really are appropriating civil rights tactics, language, symbols, as a means to roll back civil rights policies. So are they doing this because, it's interesting, so with the gender issue, are they basically just trying to wedge Mm -hmm. people who are concerned with gender equality from people who are concerned with racial equality as a means of making sure that they don't so easily join forces. Is that the idea? Right. There's different motivations, right? So in the statewide initiatives, um, particularly in California, it's very clear that these were racial wedge issues, right? Mm -hmm. These were, there were um, ways to sort of mobilize an electorate, right? So in California, 96, we have to remember that, you know, Bill Clinton is, is in office mm -hmm. prior, you know, 94, right? So Bill Clinton is in office. The Republicans want the presidency back, mm -hmm. right? And they essentially want to, you know, they want to create Reagan Democrats. Okay. Right. So this is a phrase that's used to speak about the sort of white union working class Democrats right. that, you know, shifted to the Democratic Party to vote for Reagan. Huh. Right. And so they want Reagan Democrats. They want to pull people from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party as a means to get the presidency back. Right. So in California, one way that this is done is, is through affirmative action. Prior to affirmative action, we have Prop 187 in California, which takes social services away from undocumented people. So some of the same things are happening right. in terms of, again, the racial wedge issues. The governor of California, Pete Wilson, he wants to run for president. Right. Right. Okay. And so we, we so we have he you know, he, he doesn't ultimately get the right. nomination. Right? right. But this is one of the things. Right. And so that's a motivation. The Center for Individual Rights, who is behind the first Texas case and the Michigan cases, this is an ideological organization. This mm. is a organization, like I said, called the Center for Individual Rights, right? Very neoliberal um, right. kind of libertarian organization that wants to sort of end this federal overreach, right? right? And so they see affirmative action as a case where they can do that. Can I interject? So it, you have, I'm, I'm understanding there are people who are ideologically committed mm -hmm on doing these things but then there are just also political actors who are seeking to stoke like white resentment is that what it is is it sort of like that era's version of what donald trump does today type of thing it's like a, i would say so right huh. it's, it's hard to sort of see them in the same space because we're in such a insane moment yeah. right now right <laughs> so it's even in going back and revising this book you know because i wrote this was initially a dissertation mm -hmm. and i finished it before trump was elected right yeah. and so going back and, and in revising this book is really interesting because i'm really dealing with sort of elite conservatives mm -hmm. right folks that you know before wouldn't have even associated themselves with Trump, right? They see right. that as something else, right? right? And so so it's really interesting now to be in this sort of Trump moment and kind of understand this on a kind of continuum, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, people are, particularly with the ballot initiatives, mm -hmm. absolutely trying to sort of... Um, get people out to vote. Yeah, absolutely. And who, you know, what better way than to right. get people angry about, you know, black people taking their kids' emissions from UC Berkeley? Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. 
And it's basically, it, that's interesting because then it, it makes you think, you know, it's like the, you think that Trump is such a, a, a different thing, but it, it looks like, it sounds like it's the same game, just in a different sort of package. Absolutely. I see it, yeah, like on a continuum, I think. And huh. I also think that, you know, with, you know, the, these cases in some ways set a kind of precedent, right? So we don't just go from, you know, this sort of genteel world to a Trump, right? Mm, we have right. to, yeah. <laughs> we get that, you know, we have yeah. to sort of build to get to there. <laughs> and I think that these affirmative action cases are um, one space where that happens, totally. right? And then yeah. we have, you know, Tea Party is after this, you know, mm-hmm. so we, we, we build to get to Trump. But the elites, what's their iron in this fire? Like why, what, what's motivating them? Are they just, do they want a tax cut and they figure if they make working class whites mad, that'll get them the, like what, what's their... What's their iron in this fight? Right. I mean, that's a great question. I think that in many cases, this is, like I said, very ideologically driven, mm-hmm. right? This mm-hmm. is about attempts to roll back the civil rights movement. Yeah. This is about wanting to sort of resist, quote unquote, federal overreach. Mm. And this is about, you know, not necessarily with the sort of elites that are running these campaigns, but if you think, you know, the 90s is a time at which college admissions begins to get competitive. Mm-hmm. Right. Some of these really elite think about Berkeley or, you know, some of these elite public universities, you know, going back to the 70s and the 80s. I mean, not nearly as competitive as it is now. Right. right. And so we have people that probably took for granted. Right. Mm. Oh, of course, I'm going to go. My kids will go to Berkeley or right. wherever. Right. And now it's not so guaranteed. Hmm. And so this is also important context in regards to getting people upset. I mean, we know that there are, there's this huge, you know, industry to just sort of prepare kids to be able to compete in these emissions processes, yeah. testing and, you know, all kinds of things, you know, mm. consultants and all of that. Right. And, and so I think people are responding to this crunch. They're responding mm. to competitive elite emissions as well. It's like, yeah, that's the one space, too, where people will let their ethics go right out the window when it involves their kids. Right. Yeah. So we have, yeah. you know, this, you know, recent scandal, right, where you have the college admissions yeah, thing. Which oh, is yeah. always, that was hilarious <laughs> to me because yeah. it was like, of course this has happened. Like, I, you know, and I, you know, my undergraduate institution was one of the schools that was, you know, oh, yeah. exposed in this, right? So I went to the University of Southern California as an undergraduate. And when this happened, everybody was like, what do you think? And I was like, of course, yeah. Like, that's, yeah. I'm ve- I was very aware that this yeah. was happening when I was going to school, right? I mean, because it happens in a variety of ways. It's not just these rich kids, but it's also, you think about the way that athletes are recruited to be in these spaces, yeah. right? Like, I mean, so it's... We were chatting about it on the show and we were like, this is what the not rich enough kids do. Because mm-hmm. the really rich kids just buy something buy real big. Yeah. They buy a building. <laughs> That's straight in. It's very, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, oh, and, okay, so we're running a little short on time, but I'm, I'm dying to know, just because I'm at Queens College and, you know, when I speak to older folk, a lot of them are, are bitter about the open enrollment, like alumni who felt like their degree was very prestigious and they speak about it with some bitterness. What was your take on like what have, first of all, it's amazing that a, a, a prestigious school would just open the doors like that mm-hmm. aside from like the social justice or whatever aspects of it. Like, like what happened when they just threw their doors open? Was it like, what happened to the institutions? Uh, so thank you for bringing that up. So, you know, when we talk about City College and, you know, which was the first, right, and then right. The CUNY schools, right, these are schools that were built for poor immigrants. Mm-hmm. City College, this was literally in the sort of founding. This was a school, that's the purpose of the school, right, right. To, to educate poor immigrants, right? And so with these kind of working class roots, 
there was always this attention to being a good space for the average man, right? Mm. As you mentioned, you know, the reputation of these spaces became very um, prestigious, in part because of the uh, discrimination that Ivy Leaks were practicing against Jewish people, right? right? So a lot of Jews that were prevented from enrolling in Ivy League colleges because of, you know, the quotas and the things that were going on at that time came into the CUNY system, mm -hmm. right? And so we have very, you know, elite reputation at the time. Now, open admissions happens. People are brought in. A key part of open admissions is remedial courses, which mm -hmm. is common. This is not you know unique to CUNY, right? Yeah. Even schools that are um, quote unquote elite have significant remedial programs, sure, yeah. right? So this is not <laughs> even unique to working class kids, right? right? So that's one piece that's sort of necessary for that. But you know, oftentimes opening up doors to a huge amount of people of color. A lot of times people blame these students for the reason of the quote unquote decline of the system, right? right? right. Which I think is really problematic and racist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We really have to understand that the time at which, you know, the doors are open is the time at which we're again entering into this neoliberal period. We have massive state disinvestment mm -hmm. in the system. Mm -hmm. Right. We have a city generally that's, quote unquote, on decline. It's mm. not just the university system. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 70s were bad for New York. Right. Yeah. And so this has a major impact mm. on the CUNY system. Right. So it's not it's not the students yeah. that were the issues. Never been the case. It has been about the resources you know, the institutional supports for the CUNY system. And so part of, you know, CUNY even sort of getting rid of remediation in um, senior colleges is also about pivoting to finding, you know, more resources for the system. They want to attract middle-class kids who can pay more tuition. Mm. Um, they want to attract investment. Mm. They want to be higher ranked because this is about resources, right, and the ways in which both public and private universities have to position themselves in this neoliberal period, right? Mm -hmm. They have to make, they have to find ways to make money because they're not getting it from other places, right? And so that happens. I think it's important to note that, um, and I don't know how much we're going to get into, you know, CUNY's, this is yeah. a CUNY uh, <laughs> podcast, right? But <laughs> it's important to note that, you know, at, with the end of um, open admissions in the senior colleges, we also have an adoption of a new strategic plan in the CUNY system where we have the emergence of the Honors College, right? Which yeah. in, in some ways is a way to kind of uh, funnel and sort of concentrate resources in a particular way in the CUNY system. Yeah. So, you know, just with the, the kind of donations and things that Macaulay is getting, right? And so, you know, these things are not happening in isolation of right. each other. They're happening in relationship to each other. Right, right. I just want to close off with one question. Through the whole journey uh, of doing the book, contemplating these issues, like what were the big insights that you walked away with? The, you know, the things that shifted your worldview? Well, so one thing that I think relates to this is, is why I included affirmative action and open admissions in the same book. Mm -hmm. They're typically not seen together. Yeah. And I think what was important for me was to consider elite universities alongside you know, less elite um, spaces as a means to understand how race and class inclusive policies are being challenged across the board, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Most students in this country go to schools that are more akin to CUNY than to Berkeley, right. right? And so it's important for us to understand that, no, this rollback is not just happening in these elite spaces. Mm -hmm. It's also impacting the average school that the most of us school, are, right, yeah. that are going to. And so I think for me, in writing the book, it was really interesting and you know depressing yeah. for me to to see that 
you know, to see that story, to see that it's not just restricted to one space, to mm. see the coordination and the connections across cases. You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology podcast. A special thank you to Amaka Okachukwu from George Mason University. Amaka's book is To Fulfill These Rights, Political Struggle Over Affirmative Action and Open Admissions with Columbia University Press. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast, and on Twitter, at Socianex. I'm Joseph Cohen. Thanks for listening.